tidying up. Some readers might consider tidying up a particularly unsuitable subheading on the grounds that the scheme presented so far is much too tidy, three neat ideas, and three crisp incompatibilities. What it needs is roughing up. Enormously complex processes cannot adequately be represented by such a simple scheme. Also, it has long been recognized that tensions exist among competing values in education between, say, the need to socialize and the academic curriculum. Clearly, when there is a conflict for curriculum time between consumer education or a new family life curriculum and drama or Latin, for example, no single criterion of educational value can be invoked to help us make a decision. These are value issues, necessary tensions that follow from education's being one of those essentially contested concepts. Ultimately, such issues are reflections of large-scale political conflicts. So perhaps this talk of profound theoretical incompatibilities is simply an old truism, dressed up in fancy language and made to look excessively dramatic. In tidying up, I mean to address objections like these, even if very briefly, and to summarize my point about the three ideas before I go on to introduce the fourth. Also, just before quitting the old ideas for the new, I will point out that each of the old ideas carries problems of its own for education, even beyond incompatibility. Now, nobody holds exclusively to any one of these ideas. Educational discourse during this century has been largely made up of arguments about which idea should be valued more highly. The persisting traditionalist versus progressivist, subject-centered versus child-centered disputes may be reinterpreted in these terms as representing preferences for Plato's idea over Rousseau's, or vice versa. Conflicts between those promoting vocationally-oriented studies and those promoting more purely academic subjects may be seen as preferences for socializing over Plato's idea, or vice versa. Radicals, meanwhile, are identified by their simple solution of discarding two of the ideas. This does solve the theoretical problem, and does usually mean that they can speak with a clearer and more urgent voice, and so accumulate disciples but at a harsh practical cost. At the chalk face level of classrooms in the local school, the Plato-influenced teachers who want to put in place more rigorous exams and to stream students so that learning discipline knowledge can be maximized come frequently into conflict with the Rousseau-influenced teachers who want to remove exams and even grading and focus on opening up the range of exploratory opportunities for students. The former argue for a more structured curriculum, logically sequenced, and including the canonical knowledge of Western high culture. The latter argue for activities that encourage students to explore the world around them and, in as far as they are willing to pre-specify curriculum content, they propose knowledge relevant to students' present and likely future experience. The former are likely to prefer desks in neat rows and orderly lessons, while the latter are likely to prefer varied work centers, circle desks or no desks, and flexible interdisciplinary lessons. Clearly, few teachers adhere to one position to the exclusion of others. Most teachers try to balance all of them in practice. So, for example, even Rousseau-inclined teachers tend to acknowledge the importance of canonical content of the Plato-influenced curriculum. Their compromise between incompatibles means that they feel it is important to expose students to the high-culture curriculum content, but they feel no imperative to persist with it for students who do not take to it. That is, each idea is allowed scope enough to undercut the other. Most educational administrators feel pressure from groups who prefer one or another of the ideas. Thus, they seek to find a balance among them. This is the common-sense response to recognizing these competing values, and it is the response that has given us the schools we have. They struggle to ensure a reasonably adequate socialization of students, provide a reasonable academic program, and enable as many students as seem suited to it to progress as far as possible, and attend to the different needs and potential of each student, allowing as much flexibility and choice among programs as resources allow. Apologists for the general performance of schools in the West commonly point to the array of social ills that afflict the schools, 
arguing, reasonably, that given the circumstances, schools are doing a heroic job. But such voices tend to be drowned by critics who argue that schools would do a much better job if only they would elevate one of the old ideas in importance over the others. Put greater emphasis on developing the basic values and skills that will lead to good citizenship and economic productivity, or increase the time and conditions that will put greater pressure on students to master discipline knowledge, or design curricula and teaching practices that are more relevant to students' experience. From a purely pragmatic point of view, it seems extraordinarily unlikely that any of these emphases, or any combination, or any finer balance among them, will do the trick for us. The traditional social efficiency, liberal academic, and progressivist proposals have been tried and tried again. Continuing to wobble from one to another will only exacerbate the confusion about schools' roles and perpetuate the blaming and the now stale and futile arguments about how to make things better. At best, Schooling is a set of flaccid compromises among these three great and powerful ideas. Great and powerful, they undoubtedly are, but each carries baggage that creates problems for education, even before we try sticking them together into an unworkable system. I want to dispense with some of the baggage these ideas come with, and to reconceive education in a way that preserves adequate socialization, academic cultivation, and individual development, disconnected from the educational ideas we have inherited. We have to hang on to the babies while tossing out their dirty old bathwater. That there is bathwater to be thrown out seems to be generally acknowledged. Socialization to generally agreed norms and values that we have inherited is no longer straightforwardly viable in modern multicultural societies undergoing rapid technology-driven changes. The Platonic program comes with ideas about reaching a transcendent truth or privileged knowledge that is no longer credible. The conception of individual development we have inherited is built on a belief in some culture-neutral process that is no longer sustainable. Yet a problem for any paradigm-shifting ambition to displace currently dominant ideas is that the new idea must initially be looked at through the perspectives it is trying to displace. What I must persuade you to do, if only provisionally, is to let go of the old ideas and consider what sense of education is generated by taking kinds of understanding as the primary category for thinking about education. In viewing education through this lens, Children may be seen as picking up intellectual tools from society in an effort to make sense of the world. In the process, children become, willy-nilly, socialized. The criterion at work here, however, is not, quote, what does the child need to learn in order to share the norms, values, and conventions of adult society, end quote, but rather, quote, what does the child need to learn to develop most fully each kind of understanding, end quote. The former question, relatively straightforward for oral societies long ago, and even for more homogeneous class-based societies up to the mid-20th century, is problematic for modern multicultural societies undergoing rapid and seemingly accelerating change. What are the norms and conventions of adult life today? What are the values? How does the answer differ if asked of those whose prime educational criterion is the accumulation of disciplined knowledge? Tackling the latter question, however, is relatively straightforward and will involve the child developing the flexibility and polysemousness appropriate for modern social life. That is, while the old idea of socialization and the criteria it brings with it are dispensed with, adopting a new idea does not mean that socialization will not occur. If anything, its proper relevance to education will be exposed. Now take the old academic disciplines idea. It has involved the belief that the accumulation of particular forms of knowledge in sufficient breadth and depth shapes the mind in desirable ways. Making knowledge the central building block of education creates the problem of determining what knowledge and how much breadth and depth of that knowledge is required to become adequately educated. It also leads to questions such as Herbert Spencer's What Knowledge is of Most Worth, which has remained unanswered and unanswerable in general terms for more than a century. 
the sense of the educated person being distinguished primarily by what the person knows, has been criticized by progressivists as sterile and has been vulnerable to A.N. Whitehead's withering observation that the person who has accumulated lots of the appropriate kinds of knowledge may still be among the greatest bores on God's earth. By displacing knowledge with the category of kinds of understanding, we will not be throwing knowledge overboard. The development of the various kinds of understanding requires particular kinds of knowledge. This new category also provides criteria for determining depth and breadth of knowledge. It enables us to answer Spencer's question. The knowledge that is of most worth will vary during the course of the individual's education and may be determined by the kind of understanding most actively being stimulated and developed. So academic disciplines and their knowledge are not being dispensed with. Rather, the traditionalist curriculum, made up of attempts to answer what is the most privileged knowledge for best forming the rational mind, and criteria for education derived from some image of an ideal epistemological condition or an ideally educated person, will disappear. The new category and its criterion will justify a richer curriculum that will require more knowledge and more varied forms of knowledge. Yes, I know. Promises, promises. I want only to indicate that pushing aside these old ideas will not mean that the insights they have brought to the process of education will be dumped. Some sense of socialization will persist in the process of developing kinds of understanding, but it is not a sense of socializing that brings along with it criteria that conflict with those that come from academic disciplines. Similarly, developing kinds of understanding will obviously involve the individual moving through layers or stages of psychological development. But the sense of development involved in this new conception of education will yield categories quite different from those that have been pushed on education by proponents of theories like Piaget's, for example. And the development implicit in moving from one kind of understanding to another will not come into conflict with what remains of socialization or academic disciplines. Again, of course this is too schematic to capture the huge complexity of educational ideas and practices. But it isn't obviously wrong or meaningless as a result. I think educational thinking is dominated by the three major ideas I have identified, and that they are incompatible in the ways I have indicated, and that these incompatibilities are at the root of many of the practical difficulties of schooling. The modern school has developed as a compromise among these three ideas, a compromise that shifts a little in one direction or another in response to social movements, or in response to particularly vivid and powerful articulations of the value of one or another of these ideas. Socialization was somewhat more prominent in the 1950s in much of the Western world, Rousseau in the 1960s and early 1970s, and Plato made a pale comeback in some areas in the 1980s. The recognition of tensions and value issues in education is indeed a truism, but exposing their source isn't, and exposing their source is an important step to overcoming them. That is the task for the rest of the book. So while hardly providing all one needs to know about education, this sketch has had some heuristic value in grasping current disputes about education. Its value is to indicate why the proposals one sees in public media and in government reports for solving the crisis in our schools are unlikely to achieve that desirable end. They are captive to the ideas that are the problem. They propose more socializing and less Plato and Rousseau, or more Plato and less socializing and Rousseau, or more Rousseau and less socializing and Plato. The only difference, decade by decade, is the preferred terms, metaphors, and jargon. Giving a reason to believe that no shuffling of these ideas is likely to do as much good provides my route to introducing the new idea. A new idea. I mentioned in the introduction that the new conception of education to be elaborated below draws on 19th century recapitulation theories and on Vygotsky, who died in 1936. So its main components are not exactly gleaming fresh from the mint. But blowing the dust off recapitulation theories, 
and connecting them with an insight of Vygotsky's can, I think, lead to a new educational idea. The first trick, which earlier theories failed to pull off, is to identify the nature of the connection between cultural development in the past and educational development in the present. How can one locate a common element in the two processes and show a causal relationship between them, exactly what is recapitulated in education? The second trick is to show that the theoretical solution implies practical curricula and teaching methods clearly appropriate to modern social conditions and requirements. I will try to perform the first trick in this section and elaborate it while performing the second trick in the rest of the book. In the latter part of the 19th century, after publication of Darwin's The Origin of Species, recapitulation theories were formed to apply evolutionary ideas to processes other than those Darwin developed his theory to explain. Herbert Spencer, 1820-1903, was one of the most energetic promoters of evolutionary ideas to explain pretty well everything in sight. He compactly expressed the basis for a cultural recapitulation theory of education in the following claim. Quote, if there be an order in which the human race has mastered its various kinds of knowledge, there will arise in every child an aptitude to acquire these kinds of knowledge in the same order. Education should be a repetition of civilization in little. End quote. At a sufficiently general level, all educational theories involve people recapitulating, repeating for themselves, the discoveries and inventions that have accumulated through the history of their culture. The five-year-old learning to write recapitulates an invention of a few thousand years ago. The student learning history recapitulates a kind of thinking, a way of making sense of experience, whose invention by the ancient Greeks we can trace in some detail. But recapitulation theories go further than this, claiming some precise causal connection between past cultural development and present educational development. Such theories propose ways in which the particular character of cultural development should shape the process of education. The appeal of recapitulation to educators in the late 19th and early 20th century lay in the promise that cultural history could guide the design of much more effective educational programs. G. Stanley Hall enthusiastically claimed that recapitulation, quote, when explored and utilized to its full extent, will reveal pedagogic possibilities now undreamed of, end quote. What it seemed to offer was a way of ordering the curriculum that corresponded with the way knowledge logically developed and or with nature's own scheme of human development, both of which were to be exposed by the study of cultural development and either of which would ensure easier learning and secure understanding. Two general kinds of recapitulation theories of education developed, which can be simply called logical and psychological. The first developed from the observation that knowledge has developed gradually in cultural history, and the, quote, order in which the human race has mastered its various kinds of knowledge, end quote, to repeat Spencer's phrase, exposes a logic that in turn can be used in designing the curriculum. One only has to repeat that order in the curriculum, and one has laid out a logical path that the mind of the developing child can follow with maximum ease and a guarantee of finishing up at the peak of human understanding. The second, psychologically-based recapitulation theories, tended to draw more directly from evolutionary theory. The recapitulation in these theories was assumed to be from the primitive psychological condition of savages to that of sophisticated Victorian adults. John Dewey supported such theories, at least to the degree that they broke the hold of the prevailing conventional schemes and provided, quote, the first systematic attempts to base a course of study upon the actual unfolding of the psychology of child nature, end quote. A more modern attempt to identify a common psychological basis to cultural and individual development is made by Hall Pike, using Piaget's theory. Commonly, aspects of logical and psychological theories were combined with the usual problems. In Germany in particular, and in the United States, which was strongly influenced by German ideas, culture epic curricula were developed with high hopes. These attempted to reflect in the curriculum 
the major epics of cultural history, ensuring that children pass through them in logical sequence and at a pace suited to their psychological development. Dewey, though later dismissive of recapitulationism, expressed the kinds of observations that had an intuitive appeal for some people. Quote, there is a sort of natural recurrence of the child mind to the typical activities of primitive people. Witness the hut which the boy likes to build in the yard, playing hunt, with bows, arrows, and spears, and so on. End quote. But the high hopes faded quickly. The curricula seemed plausible when dealing with history and literature, beginning with the study of primitive people and folk tales and myth stories. But no amount of ingenuity could make recapitulation seem sensible when dealing with mathematics or science. If the logical principle was stumbling over how to avoid confusing children with a Ptolemaic view of the cosmos, the psychological principle was coming to grief as recapitulation ideas in biology, on which it had been based, were being abandoned. One reason recapitulation theories failed and disappeared from the active educational scene was their inability to explain, to use Spencer's terms, how and why there should arise in modern children an aptitude to acquire knowledge in the order it was invented and discovered in cultural history. Why not simply and sensibly begin, as the progressivist argued, with the immediate world around the child? So, more significant in causing the disappearance of cultural recapitulation theories was the urgent task of equipping children entering the new mass schools with the basic knowledge, skills, and dispositions required by the rapidly developing industrial world. This was particularly so in the United States, where teachers also became the frontline troops in familiarizing huge numbers of immigrant children with contemporary American society. Educational schemes that were past-oriented and reached the present day only at the end of schooling could hardly be accommodated to meet such urgent social needs. Dewey finally dismissed the idea of recapitulation because its likely effect is, quote, to make the present a more or less futile imitation of the past, end quote. As the purpose of progressive education is to, quote, emancipate the young from the need of dwelling in an outgrown past, end quote, recapitulation has nothing to offer education. And that remains the most common, almost automatic response of those educationalists today who have heard of recapitulation. Vygotsky's ideas can be stated very simply for present purposes. He argued that we make sense of the world by use of mediating intellectual tools that in turn profoundly influence the kind of sense we make. Our intellectual development, then, cannot adequately be understood in terms of the knowledge we accumulate, or in terms of psychological stages like Piaget's, but requires an understanding of the role played by the intellectual tools available in the society into which a person grows. Intellectual tools, like oral language, that surround the child are gradually internalized as the child grows. Intellectual tools, or sign systems, begin, to use Vygotsky's term, as interpsychic processes and become intrapsychic within the child. That is, in Vygotsky's view, higher psychological processes, such as the dialogic question and answer structure, begin in interactions with others as external social functions that were themselves invented perhaps long ago in cultural history, and then become internalized and transformed into psychological functions. Quote, it is through this interiorization of historically determined and culturally organized ways of operating on information that the social nature of people comes to be their psychological nature as well. End quote. The process of intellectual development, then, is to be recognized in the individual's degree of mastery of tools and of sign systems such as language. The development of intellectual tools leads to qualitatively different ways of making sense. Quote, the system of signs restructures the whole psychological process. End quote. So the set of sign systems one internalizes from interactions with particular cultural groups, particular communities, will significantly inform the kind of understanding of the world that one can construct. 
Vygotsky defined development in terms of the emergence or transformation of forms of mediation, end quote. So the mind is not an isolable thing like the brain inside its skull. It extends into and is constituted of its sociocultural surroundings, and its kinds of understandings are products of the intellectual tools forged and used in those surroundings. How does this help solve our theoretical problem about recapitulation? Well, we can identify what is recapitulated, not in terms of knowledge or psychological processes, but in terms of mediating intellectual tools and the kinds of understanding they generate. We can see, too, that Spencer posed the question wrongly. It is not that something that occurred in cultural history causes an aptitude in every child to acquire knowledge in the same order, but rather that by acquiring specific intellectual tools, the modern individual generates similar kinds of understanding as existed for people using those tools in the past. That is, the mistake of past recapitulation theorists was to look for some X in cultural history that causes some Y in education today. Rather, we should look for some A, the mediating intellectual tools, that causes both X and Y. So we can consider cultural and educational development as connected by the tools that generate common kinds of understanding in both processes. Vygotsky focused largely on oral language in young children to work out his basic theories of culturally mediated action and development. I want to consider degrees of culturally accumulated complexity in language, beginning with oral language, then moving to literacy, then to the development of systematic, abstract, theoretic, linguistic forms, and finally to habitual, highly reflexive uses of language. Each of these degrees of sophistication in language development restructures the kind of sense their users make of the world. I will investigate the implications of each of these degrees of linguistic development for kinds of understanding. Because the A of intellectual tools causes kinds of understanding common to the X of cultural history and the Y of education today, I will consider both cultural and educational development together in the following four chapters. It might reasonably be objected that this attempted marriage of Vygotsky and recapitulationism is improper as Vygotsky rejected recapitulation on the ground that ontogenesis involves the natural maturation of the brain, something that plays no part in the course of cultural history. I have four responses. First, it is far from clear how the natural maturation of the brain affects individuals' understanding compared with the acquisition of mediating tools, and one might reasonably argue that the influence of the tools is sufficient to explain the evident changes in kinds of understanding without resort to distinct influences from the maturation process. Second, Vygotsky and Luria distinguish between bifurcated lines of development in the child, calling one natural psychological and the other cultural psychological, and identifying in the latter the major reformulations of mental functioning, a move compatible with the scheme to be outlined here. Third, ontogenesis, particularly during the early years, involves recapitulating patterns of maturation laid down in the process of evolutionary development. And while evolutionary influences diminish as the individual grows older, it is improper to suggest a sharp line at which the brain's physiological maturation escapes influence by such past cultural developments as language. Fourth, the conceptions of recapitulation Vygotsky had in mind were those 19th century kinds dismissed above to which his objection would be destructive in a way that it isn't to what follows. Now, I could try to address in the abstract the many potential objections to this proposed project that will no doubt be thronging the minds of critical readers, but the objections in my responses might be made more pointed and concrete if I show first how one can characterize kinds of understanding as implications of intellectual tools. So let me put off the Inquisition until Chapter 6. Conclusion Our schools are not, in general, highly regarded today. The sense of their ineffectiveness is not, I have suggested, any specific group's fault. 
Yet when we have a general social unease, we tend to look for someone to blame. Much of the popular literature on education in the 1960s blamed the Platonists and an academic curriculum that was disconnected from students' experience and irrelevant to their lives. The neoconservative critics of the 1980s blamed the Rousseauians, particularly John Dewey. The average schooling experience of students has not shown evident signs of improvement as a result of these or earlier criticisms and the prescriptions that have followed from them. Blaming Rousseau and Dewey for the condition of our schools, as do Bloom and Hirsch, is akin to blaming merchants or sheep farmers for rising prices. Rousseau and Dewey have enriched our conception of education in important ways. We will not make educational progress by trying to cut away their contribution. The cause of our difficulties, our equivalent to 16th century bouillon imports, is, I have been arguing, the fact that the components of our conception of education are incompatible with one another. The problem is not with the school necessarily, but with the way we conceive what the school is supposed to do. To practical people, such refined theoretical issues may seem remote from the activities of the school down the road. But I think there is something in John Maynard Keynes's famous, or infamous, conclusion to his general theory of employment, interest, and money. I will change the word slightly to fit an educational rather than an economic context. Quote, the ideas of educational theorists, both when they are right and when they are wrong, are more powerful than is commonly understood. Indeed, education is ruled by little else. Practical people, who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influences, are usually the slaves of some defunct educational theorist. Mad people in authority, who hear voices in the air, are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler of a few years back. I am sure that the power of educational stakeholders is vastly exaggerated compared with the gradual encroachment of ideas. Not, indeed, immediately, but after a certain interval, for in the field of education there are not many who are influenced by new theories after they are 25 or 30 years of age, so the ideas which administrators and politicians and even teachers apply to current schooling are not likely to be the newest. But, soon or late, it is ideas, not stakeholders, which are dangerous for good or ill. End quote. What I will do in chapters 2 through 6 is offer one way of reconceiving education. In chapters 7 and 8, I will explore its implications in rather broad terms, but in sufficient detail, I hope, to show that the indispensable parts of our current conception of education are preserved. This reconceptualizing of education will have fairly radical implications for the curriculum and for teaching, but not so radical, I suspect, that they will not appear directly practical. If I do the job reasonably well, I will not seem to be sketching out some strange and new landscape but drawing a picture that will seem recognizable and even familiar.